0: Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, to you all hearts are open, every desire known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we might perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. People of God, just over a year ago, Tom Cruise starred in a movie called Minority Report. The premise of this futuristic action thriller is that sometime in the not-too-distant future, police would have the technology to predict crime before it happened. At the center of this technology, according to the story, are three genetically manipulated psychics who can see into the minds of criminals and project an image of the crime prior to its occurrence. This, of course, enables police to arrest the offender before there's an actual offense. The whole futuristic judicial system works on the premise that these precogs, as they're called, are never, are supposedly never wrong. But as it turns out, they occasionally see things differently and disagree. And one of them can produce a minority report, a report with an alternate ending, meaning that the arrested person is actually innocent. The trouble is, the minority report is usually lost, filed away. It's usually suppressed. From the standpoint of the government, the majority report is all that really matters. The writer of the Sermon to the Hebrews is dealing with a group of Christians who have separated themselves from the majority perspective, from the state religion supported by Rome. And they're enduring enduring a significant amount of persecution because they are holding to a minority stance. They've been excluded from the synagogues, no longer protected by their fellow Jews. And the temptation has become strong for many of these first-century Christians, to simply return to the Jewish faith, to abandon biblical faith altogether in order to avoid suffering. Until recently in North America, we've lived with the relative security of thinking that we Christians have the majority voice in society. For some time, we've talked about America as a Christian nation, or at least as founded on Judeo-Christian ethics. But in recent decades, we've begun to sense a turn of the tide in different directions. And it's become clearer to us that we're simply one option among a myriad of others, that the Christian voice is no longer the loudest voice in society. E.M. Blalock, a modern biblical scholar, makes the surprising statement that out of the 2,100 years of Christianity, the 21st century will be culturally closest to the first century. Persecution will rise, and Western Christians will no longer see themselves as the majority position. We've all enjoyed the benefits of living in a democratic society where the rules of society are shaped by the majority. It's very comfortable if you are in the majority. But we may soon find ourselves in a position where, like the Christians of the first century, we no longer have the loudest voice. We no longer have much say about the direction of our culture. Christian thinkers suggest that we can do one of two things in this situation. We, continue, we can continue to insist that we were here first, and therefore we're still in charge fighting tooth and claw to stay in positions of power. Or, we can learn once again what it might look like to be a witness for the gospel while living as a minority voice in our culture. Now, the second option seems very unappealing, simply because being a minority usually means being suppressed, marginalized, and sometimes even persecuted. Former U.S. President Bill Clinton said in a speech some time ago, from the dawn of human society up to the present time, we've been bedeviled by a persistent curse. The compulsion people feel to define the meaning of their lives in positive terms with reference to those who are like them, racially, tribally, culturally, religiously, politically. And by negative reference, to those who are different from them. People seem to feel compelled to oppress those who are different, and when they're small and powerless, unable to prevent it. From the days of Constantine through the Holy Roman Empire and Christianized Europe, it's become habitual for Western Christians to assume that we're supposed to be the people in charge of government and society and culture. America's assumption has often been that it was our job to be a light to the world, as one president put it, and that contributes to the notion that Christians really ought to be the majority voice in society. But the handwriting seems to be on the wall. Like it or not, we Christians are representing the minority report in most of the Western world. And we face constant pressure to conform to the majority report, the report of materialism and secularism of our society. And like some of the Jewish Christians in the first century, the temptation is strong to follow the crowd, to take the path of least resistance. And we are very much inclined to do so. A few years ago, psychologist Ruth Berenda and her associates carried out an interesting experiment with teenagers designed to show how they handled group pressure. Groups of ten adolescents were instructed to raise their hands when the teacher pointed at a chart at the longest line on three separate charts. What one person in the group didn't know was that the other nine students had been previously instructed to only vote for the second longest line no matter what they were told. So the experiment began with nine teenagers voting for the wrong line, the remaining student who was voting for the longest line would without fail lower his or her hand, and before the test was finally over, join the other nine students in voting for the second longest line it takes a certain amount of courage to stand against the crowd. It doesn't seem to be in our instincts. The preacher of of the letter to the Hebrews calls his congregation to muster up that kind of courage, to take a stand on the minority report of the gospel rather than abandon truth in favor of culture in order to avoid suffering. Some of them were arguing, what's so bad about returning to Moses? Moses was a true hero of the faith, the preeminent prophet of God, the giver of the law. Surely it's no compromise to go back to Moses, especially if we can avoid suffering in the process. And of course, the preacher of Hebrews doesn't want to talk smack about Moses. It's for the teenagers, just to see if they're paying attention. Moses was a faithful servant of God. But Moses is just the start. Jesus is the finish. The difference between Moses and Jesus is this. First, yes, Moses was a faithful servant in the household of God. But by contrast, Jesus is the son of the householder. He is the heir of the entire house. This is the difference between being an employee of the company and the owner of the company. Second, Moses is part of the house himself, a member of the body. But Jesus, we're told, is over the house. He's the head of the body. So when someone comes into your house, for example, and and compliments you on the beautiful architecture, your natural response is to say, thank you. Your guest may be commenting on your very good taste in choosing such an attractive home, or they may be complimenting you on, your, on taking si- such fine care of it. But the same compliment offered to the actual architect or builder would mean something far more. It's one thing to flatter somebody on the beauty of the house they bought. It's another thing to praise someone on the beauty of the house they built. For the preacher of, the, of Hebrews, this is the difference between Moses and Jesus. This is why the chapter begins. Brothers and sisters, focus your attention on Jesus, the apostle and high priest, we confess. You can't remain faithful to God if you turn your attention away from Jesus, even if you think you're just turning back to Moses, because Jesus is the builder and owner of the house of God. Moses was a faithful steward in the house of God, But Jesus is the faithful Son over the house of God. And so, if we're going to remain faithful to this minority report of the gospel, it'll be necessary for us to keep in front of our eyes examples of faithfulness. If we're to know what faithfulness is, we need to see it, we need to know examples of it, especially since we live in a society that shows us the exact opposite that elevates the trivial and rewards the insignificant. Notice, for example, how our language has shifted over the years. In just about five years ago, a large group of schoolchildren were asked to name their heroes. And as you would expect, the names that came up were Michael Jordan, Shaquille O'Neal, and various rock and roll singers. A previous generation would have called these people Celebrities but certainly not heroes. Heroes are people who have distinguished themselves through courage, nobility, and sacrifice, not people who are famous for being famous. The preacher to the Hebrews wants to keep before our eyes heroes of the faith, people like Joshua and Moses, people like Abraham and Sarah, because it's within this communion of saints that we are able to tell the difference by their example. We are able to tell the difference between true heroism and just fame. Elizabeth Elizabeth Elliot writes, How else shall we grasp the meaning of courage or strength or holiness? We need to see such truth made visible in the lives of human beings. Consider the heroic faith of St. Polycarp, disciple of the Apostle John, Standing prisoner before the Roman governor, Polycarp was told that he would be released immediately if only he accepted the majority report, if only he denounced Christ and swore allegiance to the Roman emperor. Polycarp's reply was simple. For 86 years, I've been Christ's servant, and he has never done wrong to me. How could I possibly blaspheme the king who saved me? It is this kind of example of faith that the writer of Hebrews compels the believer not to abandon and to not abandon the assembly of the church, which is the context where these examples are described and lived, the community of faithful where we're reminded again and again the difference between fame and true heroism. It's only within the gathering of believers and in the hearing of the word of God that we're encouraged once again to fix our gaze on Jesus rather than on the standards and values of the present age. It's easy for us to think about the church as merely a voluntary organization like Boy Scouts or the Elks Club and to think about the church only only in terms of how it helps our private spiritual life. But ultimately, we could take it or leave it. But the preacher of Hebrews is calling us to a deeper appreciation of the gathered community. He argues that this is the household of God. This is the place where Moses and the prophets are at work. This is the community which Jesus oversees. This is your heavenly calling to be part of this building that God himself, through Jesus Christ, is constructing. In other words, the writer of Hebrews wants us to see that we do not choose church, we're chosen by God for the church. Famous architect Frank Lloyd Wright once said, when you design a house, you have to ask what people want to live in, but you must also keep an eye on what they want to live for. Hebrews reminds us that what we want to live for has been determined by the builder of the house. That's why we must fix our gaze on Jesus. Fix our eyes not on the frightening change around us or the crisis of our own lives or our circumstances gone awry. We should fix our gaze on Jesus, who is the only source of stability and hope. The danger of slipping away is always present. There's always a temptation to turn from the unpopular truth of the gospel, from the minority report of Jesus, toward the security and acceptance of the majority report of our prevailing culture. This is why Hebrews 3 contains this stern warning taken from Psalm 95, which is also based on Numbers 13 and 14. You remember the story from the Old Testament. The Israelites have traveled from Egypt to Kadesh Barnea, and they're on the verge of entering into the Holy Land. After 40 years, after 40 years of wandering, they stand at the entrance to the Promised Land. And God said to them, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. And 12 spies were sent out to survey the land. And 40 days later, they came back with their report. On the one hand, they said, we have good news. As God said, the land is flowing with milk and honey. But there's bad news. The land is fortified with enormous men who make us look like grasshoppers. And so the majority of the spies concluded, the land we explored will devour anyone living in it. But there was a minority report from Joshua and Caleb. They didn't dispute these facts, but they firmly believed the promise of God that this would be their place of rest. But Joshua and Caleb were overruled by the majority, and their lives were threatened because of their insistence on obeying God rather than looking at the circumstances which seem so dreary. And the people, having failed to obey God, follow his command, this entire generation, save Joshua and Caleb, perished in the wilderness. They did not receive the rest that God had promised. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that we can make the same mistake in our faith if we abandon the minority report of Jesus for the pull of the majority today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your forefathers were tested or tested and tested me and tried me for 40 years and saw what I did that is why I was angry with that generation and said their hearts are going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. It's tempting for all of us to live on the laurels of the past, to look backwards in our own faith journey and assume that what has happened in the past Is a guarantee of our future. We say things like, I was saved in 1967, so I'm going to heaven. Or I asked Jesus back into my heart in Bible camp, 1972, so I'm saved. The writer of Hebrews sees things differently. You can be saved out of slavery in Egypt, you can pass miraculously through the Red Sea, you can eat manna for 40 years in the wilderness. But when you come to the entrance of the promised land, you can fail. You can fail to enter God's rest. Martin Luther describes our baptism as a one-time event that takes a lifetime of faithfulness to fulfill, to finish. Conversion is a pilgrimage that takes a life. It's not merely purchasing a ticket at one point in your life. Far too many Christians seem to think that they've reserved a ticket, but they've settled down to nap in a comfortable chair in the airport terminal. And the only thing they've done since their conversion experience is wait for the arrival of the plane. Hebrews calls us to not be complacent about our salvation. Hebrews calls us to faithful action, saying that we should strive earnestly to enter God's rest. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, we might be discouraged at the thought that it might take even more hard work to receive the promised land. And so we're tempted to give up hope and take a different direction entirely, to write a different ending to the story. Woody Allen wrote a farce called God a play. This play is a a classical Greek drama gone awry. When the situation on stage has gotten about as bad as it can get, Zeus is supposed to descend from the rafters, from the heavens, in order to get humankind back on track again. Unfortunately, this deus ex machina doesn't work because the mechanism that is supposed to lower The god onto the stage fails, and the hapless actor playing Zeus gets tangled in the wires and harness and is accidentally choked. One actor is stunned and can't go on. God is dead. God is dead. But another actor of the show-must-go-on school says simply, then we have to ad-lib the ending the writer of Hebrews wants to warn us of trying to ad-lib our own ending, the ending for our own lives. We started with the story of the gospel. This was the thing that shaped our story. This was the thing that guided our decisions and our choices. But for many of us, that story has started to wear thin. For a time when things were going our way, it seemed easy to obey God and to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. But later on, as the crises came and went, as the cross loomed in front of us as the inevitable direction of this journey, we decided to ad-lib another ending to the story. At first, it was just a substitute line here and there. But eventually, we found ourselves rewriting the whole script for ourselves. And why not? We're just not as happy as we thought we would be. There seem to be fewer certainties about life than we had hoped for. Our mouth has begun to get dry in the spiritual desert. And so it seemed like a good time to substitute another ending to the story, to borrow an ending from the culture around us. Thomas Long says that we gradually trade off the gospel story for one that is happier, easier, more upbeat, safer, less demanding, or at least one that we can touch and see with our own hands. This has always been the temptation, hasn't it? When Moses lingered on the mountaintop, the people grew tired of waiting for a word from God. They coaxed Aaron into an ad lib, a different ending. Come, let us make gods for ourselves. When Peter heard Jesus predict his own suffering and death on the cross, the disciple immediately cried out a rewrite of the script. God forbid it, Lord. May this never happen to you. The congregation of the Hebrews is growing impatient with God's story. The persecution around them increases and they're tempted to ad lib according to the easier story of Rome than to remain faithful to a story that follows a suffering Lord. And then there's us. We're inundated with a different or more attractive story every time we turn the channel, every time we drive past a billboard or open a magazine. We're offered quicker ways to happiness, simpler ways to fulfillment, if only we abandon the way of the cross. Things will be much easier for us if we embrace the majority report of our culture and turn away from the difficult and unpopular minority report of Jesus. But the scripture reminds us that this is the oldest appeal in the book. Remember the words of the tempter in the wilderness? Turn this stone into bread. Take matters into your own hands. Remember the words of the tempter in the garden? Go ahead, eat from the tree. And you will become gods. Ad-lib your own ending. Take charge of your own destiny. Surely you can take better care of yourself than God will. And so now we find ourselves so far off the path that we don't even know where to begin. We become so accustomed to writing our own script that we can barely remember our original lines. The writer of Hebrews tells us, assures us that in Jesus Christ, God is on stage with us, offering us hope and meaning in a play that seems to be spinning out of control, yet assuring us that he's in control of the ending. If you've forgotten your lines, the Holy Spirit is prompting us, he says. If only you would listen to God's voice today and not harden your hearts. If you've lost your stage directions for life, the writer tells us simply, look again to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. On this Sunday of Lent, my prayer for you and I hope your prayer for me is that we would fix our thoughts on Jesus and stop ad-libbing the story of our lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.